Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. Mayuk Sukatme. Mayuk was recently appointed to Roy Vance Board of Directors and has served as Roy Vance President and Chief Investment Officer since January 2021. He is responsible for identifying, performing diligence on, devising development strategies for, and transacting on new therapeutic programs for the company. He also informs Roy Vance's view of its existing biopharmaceutical subsidiary companies for capital allocation decisions across the Roy Vance portfolio. Mayuk joined Roy, Roy Vant in 2015 and previously served as president of Roy Vant Pharma and as chief business officer. Programs that he has in licensed or acquired for Roy Vant have produced all of 10 of Roy Vant's positive phase three studies and have garnered six FDA approvals. Prior to joining Roy Vant, Mayuk was a healthcare focused analyst and portfolio manager for several large institutional investment firms, including both public markets and venture capital firms. He earned his MD from Harvard Medical School and his BS in biology and BS in literature from MIT. Mayuk, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Joe. So Royvent has been in the news recently with the acquisition of Televant, and we'll get into all of those interesting details of that deal. But before we start, I'd like to just get a sense for your background. Uh, we would think maybe as academics that it may be unconventional for an MD to end up in an investment role at a pharma company. So can you give us a sense of uh, you know, what were you thinking when you finished your MD and how it led you to become interested in and end up working in investment roles, both uh, in institutional investors and at Royvan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say that that first my, my, uh, my journey was uh, somewhat uh, non-traditional, especially at the time. And I think that one of the things that's been great over the last uh, 20 or, or so or 20 plus years now since I've left medicine is that actually there's a sort of a broader aperture for people that are in med school and grad school to do things other than sort of a, you know, sort of a pure, uh, you know, academic or, or, or practice uh, thereafter. Um, so my own story was, I, uh, I think, as you mentioned in your introduction, I went to MIT for, for undergrad and I started, uh, I started med school. Uh, this was in the late nineties. And um, at the time, you know, many of my uh, former MIT classmates, this was the sort of first wave of, you know, the web 1.0. So the sort of first wave of internet companies was really taking off. And so I had a lot of friends who were, as you might expect uh, for coming from MIT, computer science majors who were really then going to grad school, but starting up and thinking about tech companies, uh, you know, uh, on the side. And, and so I ended up getting involved actually in a friend, uh, a friend's company that was unrelated to medicine at all when I was a first year med student. Uh, that was a, a search engine technology company in, in, in tech. And I had some, some background that was relevant to, to that, uh, to that venture. Um, and, you know, so I, I sort of was uh, in anatomy lab at the time and then thinking a little bit about that, but it really kind of opened my eyes uh, to sort of going through the process of getting venture funding, thinking about investing, thinking about entrepreneurship. And so pretty quickly, even though I went to med school fully intending to be, uh, you know, a, a practicing physician, an academic researcher, um, I think kind of 
catching that that bug um, early in my med school career really uh, had me spend the rest of med school trying to figure out if I was going to be, uh, you know, a physician who happened to be entrepreneurial and have some business interests on the side or fundamentally be an investor and an entrepreneur who happened to have gotten an MD. Um, you know, at the time, uh, uh, the, um, my med school didn't actually really know what to do with, uh, with, with either one of those because I really kind of had to figure a lot of it out on, our, uh, out on my own. So I was, I was able to take sort of, uh, you know, as many classes as I could in, uh, you know, business schools, both at MIT and Harvard. Um, I tried to get, you know, internships uh, at, at venture firms and, and try to get exposed to the broader world, world of business. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to sort of just be, be pretty scrappy in trying to kind of make that transition because I think, again, at the time, that was just a very unusual thing to do. Um, and so ultimately, I actually uh, ended up uh, getting, a, getting a job at an investment firm based in New York that uh, had sort of part of its strategy focused on healthcare and specifically in biotech. And, um, and so that's the first job I took, kind of thinking in a certain sense that I, I was sort of, again, thinking very much of a, of a um, you know, of a, of a med student's residency mindset. I, I thought like, let me go to New York, let me sort of be on Wall Street and sort of get this really intense uh, you know, intense experience uh, right out of the gate, and 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 you know, and learn as, as quickly as I could about uh, about finance, about modeling, about like how to look at data in a way that you know was all sort of new muscles, um, uh, things that I had not explicitly done, uh, certainly as a medical student, but found that I was pretty wired to do it, um, and I I I really loved it. So I I spent as you mentioned in in your introduction about 15 years as an investor in the space and really focused on all kinds of different therapeutic areas. I think my my view as an investor was always I didn't want to specialize and sort of be just an investor in oncology companies or just an investor in immunology companies. My view always was if there's a good investment in, you know, a given space, you know, I'd be able to do the work, analyze the the data, go to medical meetings, talk to KOLs, you know, build the requisite sort of, you know, expertise and conviction and be able to make that investment. And, um, and, and, and I think it was like, you know, I think that part of it is always just, you know, it's, it's a highly intellectually sort of, you know, um, interesting, interesting thing, right? Because I think unlike in, you know, in the actual practice of, of medicine many times or, or you know, have, had I stayed with it, I was able to kind of, in a certain sense, be, a, um, you know, be sort of a dilettante and that I could go from one week, go go to an oncology conference and the next week go to a dermatology conference and, and so, so on and, and really kind of be always at the, at the cutting edge of new innovation, which I, I just really loved. Um, so, like I said, so I spent 15 years uh, doing that at a, at a combination of, I was largely focused on public company uh, investments, really in development stage biotech, um, but then also did some private private uh, company investing as well. So the transition to Royvent, I think we can use this also as an opportunity to talk about Royvent's unique model and, and why a chief investment officer is necessary in a biotech company. Um, especially at the size that Royvent is. 
because Roy Benz adopted what's been called a sort of hub and spoke model um, with the spin out of Vant companies to fund and promote uh, clinical development of drugs that uh, oftentimes come off the shelves of big pharma. Um, you find the sort of uh, diamond in the rough, maybe. Um, tell us about Roy Vance model and why a chief investment officer is necessary at a company like that and what your role is primarily there day to day. Yeah, absolutely. So so maybe to continue with my thread, because I think it kind of helps set the stage for 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 Royvent and how we're set up and, and why we're set up the way we're set up. Um, so when I was an investor, um, you know, I would see, and um, I, I think many of us uh, who have been in industry for a long time, this is not sort of a, a totally, you know, novel insight per se, but I think we would see, and, and I as an investor kind of covering these companies would see, you know, there are, there are changes to to the pipelines of uh, of companies all the time, right? And usually those are for, you know, what seem to be sort of reasons that have to do with the drug itself, right? So either like the drug that, you know, a, a study was run and either there was a, a safety issue or it didn't meet an efficacy bar. So those are all reasons, you know, very good reasons that, that have to do specifically with the properties of the drug. In essence, the, the sort of the scientific bet, um, didn't play out in the way that, you know, one, one thought uh, in, in running the bet in the first place. Um, but I think like every once in a while, and, and this was sort of, again, kind of as a, as a, an observer at this point, right, a, as an investor, every once in a while, but, but often enough to kind of see a pattern, um, there were decisions that, that just didn't seem to have an explanation. In other words, there were programs that, that, that I had, thought I had identified as being promising programs and, and yet like something would happen. Uh, they wouldn't get progressed even on the back of what seemed to be, you know, uh, like a fine safety profile and, and, and good efficacy. And, you know, I, that was just kind of, again, a, a, an observation that, that, that often, you know, just sort of stayed as an observation because as an investor, you couldn't really do that much about it, right? You just sort of, you would accept that reality as sort of the, the given reality and, and, you know, not be in a position to do much about it. Um, but there were also like examples of companies that had, you know, gone and, and partnered with pharma companies to, to bring on a, a, a program and, and go on to actually show that that program had great merit, great success, and, and fundamentally have an impact on, on patients, which is why we're, why, why we're in, this, uh, you know, in this industry to begin with, right? It's to deliver value to patients and innovation to patients and, and really make an impact on patients' lives. Um, and, and so there were sort of examples of uh, sort of the germ of what what we often do at Revent, which is try to find, like you said, the, the diamonds in the rough and, and go on and, and develop them. But oftentimes, um, you know, or usually I would say those, those tended to be, they, they tended to be sort of have the profile of, a, you know, a, someone who had been at that company already, right? Someone who had previously been at, you know, at Bristol Myers, uh, who had been working on a program and then, you know, some, you know, one of these sort of, you know, reasons that had nothing to do with the drug itself, sort of a change in company strategy, a change in sort of the, you know, R&D philosophy, uh, budget constraint, things like that. Um, it used to be kind of tend to be sort of a one-off spin out of uh, someone who had, you know, sort of like used to be within the organization. 
Um, but because the sort of that first drug came as a sort of a, a one-off from someone within the organization, it would be rare, in fact, almost impossible to see that happen more than once at a given company, right? It was sort of a single product company, whatever the sort of future fate of that company is. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it didn't work out. Sometimes it ended up being a, a huge success, but it was sort of a sort of a one-act play, as it were. And I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this, most likely as an investor, uh, you would see this thing across different therapeutic areas, across many different companies. And could we kind of create a company that was focused on, again, kind of fully, uh, fully sort of harnessing, I think, you know, all the work that had gone into these programs that we, we felt that we could sort of partner with a company, you know, partner with a big pharma company. And, and we've partnered with many other types of organizations as well, which I can talk about, but, but partner in a way that would sort of do this thing, but do it kind of repeatedly in a therapeutic area agnostic way, in a development stage agnostic way. Um, and candidly, in, even in a sort of a collaboration sort of, you know, structure of partnership agnostic way, really guided by a true north of getting you know, drugs developed and, and, and commercialized successfully. Uh, and so that was really kind of the, the goal overall. And, uh, you know, because, uh, because that was the goal and we're doing this again in sort of a, a, a you know, a, an agnostic way, we, we end up looking like a very different type of company sort of by, by nature, right? We're not the typical company that is, you know, a, originally based on like one idea that is sort of going from one venture round to the next and, and sort of growing from there, we're actually kind of starting midway through the cycle, but in a, you know, in a sort of, in this sort of broad, uh, broad way. It's just interesting hearing you talk about it in this way. I'm, I'm wondering, um, originally I thought that maybe you would be taking in investing terms, non-consensus views. So a pharma company views this, views a, a certain asset as, um, you know, potentially having a high probability of failure, but it mm -hmm. sounds rather than taking a non-consensus view, you're just trying to pick at the pipelines of big pharma for kind of deprioritized assets, not something that they view as maybe not working out, but something that they think, um, financially may not have the type of gain that they're looking for if commercialized. Is that true? Yeah, I think that the, the, um, yeah, it's a great question. I think that there's sort of like, there's definitely like a broad range. And I think that, that it is, it is true to say that, you know, oftentimes um, there is sort of a contrarian aspect to kind of how we approach things. Um, sometimes that's with respect to the drug. Obviously there's a, you know, I think it is also true that like, you know, two different parties can look at something and it just, you know, it, 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 it can be sort of viewed through a different way or there are sort of different needs from both partners that, you know, uh, that can kind of be aligned in sort of a, a partnership. Mm. Um, but I think, a lot, you know, I, I think, um, uh, I think a lot of times it's, um, you know, that, that everyone sees that there is some value, but it is, but is maybe like off strategy or off priority, things like that. Um, things like that. Most often. Yeah. So getting into specifics of the Royvan business model. So you identify an asset, you may in-license it or acquire it wholly, and you create a company around it, um, maybe a company around a single asset or a few assets that have uh, indications in the same therapeutic area. Um, what's that process of company formation like? 
And how soon after in licensing the asset do you actually create that company? Or does the company formation maybe even happen before and you go out looking for an asset? Yeah, so, so we tend to actually be pretty guided by the program itself. And so actually, I think you know, everything I've sort of said so far probably uh, contextualizes that, right? So we're sort of led by the program itself and, and not just the program as it is, but the program as it might be. And, and sometimes as, uh, you know, uh, you softly alluded to it, but sometimes we want to go in a pretty different direction than what the original innovator company was going to do, right? So we're going to go after different indications than what, you know, what had been developed for originally. Sometimes it's exactly along the same axis and sometimes it's along the same axis, but sort of developed in a different way. We may have a different sort of, you know, approach, uh, uh, you know, uh, just a different approach that, that we think is, you know, um, you know, uh, like a, a better way that, that, that works for us and, and how to get the drug to market quickly. Um, so we tend not to, I mean, actually we don't sort of create the company first. We actually, you know, kind of get that part, right. We, we try to get the, the program and our strategy, right. That is sort of like really the foundation for everything else. And then beyond that, I think, you know, we, we talked about the model. I think what we found is that this model, uh, works really well for us. And, and it's just important to acknowledge that, that, that may be different for different companies that are sort of built in a different way uh, or have sort of a, you know, a different, um, you know, different, you know, uh, employee base and, and sort of sort of talent philosophy and things like that. We have found, and, and part of that is because, you know, even though we're you know, coming up on our 10th year, I think we, we still view ourselves as a, you know, up and comer, uh, scrappy company, um, you know, kind of in our in our DNA, and and that sort of entrepreneurialism is a big part of how we got to where we are, and we want that to kind of, you know, we want to retain that uh, in in everything we do, and and I think part of that is, I think the observation again, at least for us, that small, really focused uh, teams that are really kind of you know eating, breathing, sleeping solving that problem. In other words, like how to get, you know, drug A uh, developed and commercialized efficiently is, is a, is sort of has been a winning strategy for us. And as you noted, that that's, that's different than, than the way many companies, uh, many companies are organized. Um, although there, there's sort of variations on the theme, right? I mean, a, a bigger company might have business units that sort of kind of think of themselves in the same way. We, we do think that there's actually something very important in, um, you know, the subsidiary company viewing themselves as like that team, uh, that van. There's sort of a, a certain like we have a, sort of a shared, you know, almost like a shared DNA between the, the parent company, Royvent, and the, and the subsidiary. But, but we also want each of those companies to have their own, you know, their own DNA, their own sort of company culture and things like that. And I think that sort of agency and that authorship, again, I think really gets, uh, you know, it has been a big part of what has kind of, you know, provided that track record that you talked about. in the introduction. Yeah. And to piggyback off of what you had mentioned about people feeling some sort of um, uh, way about their Vant, but also being under the Roy Vant subsidiary. One thing that I notice um, in, in the way that you write on the website is that uh, talent is very important, and that that's one of the key pieces to 
why this model is successful. Um, so can you talk about how the ability to recruit diverse talent for these different Vants uh, is advantageous for Royvant in particular compared to say a larger pharma company with multiple business units where everyone sort of works under the same umbrella? Yeah, I, I think I think what we have found again, and this is sort of just kind of, I'd say that the uh, the broader principle uh, that I think that I I've learned that we have learned you know in sort of doing this is that you kind of got to be um, authentic to who you are and and sort of have kind of a that sort of shared shared view, and that may not be something that is the right fit for for. For everyone or even most people but like if you if you have that shared view then it works for you and so i think like you know i think for us because we sort of have these you know small teams and are really focused i think i i think we uh have both a an ability to you know i would say that we're generally trying to uh and i think we end up with people who are probably like more more of the you know um more thinking about like alternative things that they do, their bias might be more more of the group of the cohort of, of of people that are thinking like, oh, I want to start a company, rather than the cohort of people that are you know that want to go to like a you know big organization. And they're obviously like phenomenal people, and in, in that that pick either of those, but yeah. they are sort of I think wired in a slightly different way, and think of you know think of sort of what they want to do, and candidly like what gets them energized is going to be a little bit different, and 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 we sort of try to uh, I think what we have found is that we uh, we we pull sort of more from the entrepreneurial uh, you know people that if they didn't come and join us they might have gone and started started a different company of their own. Yeah, it's it's key to that idea of you know still trying to remain the scrappy little guy who's, you know, small drug developer in early clinical phase trials. Um, so I, I think I think it makes sense from a talent perspective. I have a couple of more niche finance questions. Sure. I'm interested in how you decide to maintain a wholly owned private subsidiary versus taking companies public, these Vants, taking them public, yeah. which you've done in the past, um, what's the decision-making process there, and does it depend on the macroeconomic environment? Yeah, so so I think it. Uh, I guess I would say a few things. So it, it certainly depends on the environment, but part of it has been path-dependent, to be honest, uh, Joe. So you know, we were we were for a long time a, a private company at the top, and um, uh, you know, and and in essence, you know. Um, most of the industry, most of sort of the investment world uh, tends to make sort of single product bets, right? Single single company bets. And so we were always like slightly different and we were also, you know, we were still private. And as such, you know, it made sense to sort of take certain companies public to kind of spin them out in essence to be able to access, you know, public company capital and, um, and um, you know, and, and sort of in a certain sense, a particular event would sort of conform to most of what the biotech investment industry is, is used to seeing. Now that we're a, a, a public company, I would say very honestly that our probably our bias is to do much less of that. We haven't done that actually since we've gone public uh, as a company ourselves. And that sort of goes to 
really it's sort of like the you know corporate finance theory 101 would would suggest that like your cost of capital right the, the cost of the amount of dilution you'll take and kind of raising capital for the parent company ought to be less right it, the cost of capital ought to be lower because of that diversification than it than at a at a single product you know company and so i would expect that going forward it'll be much less the norm to to you know to take a company public than it might have been at, at various points in in the past for that reason all that being said um you know we're motivated again by what is kind of long-term right for that specific program and there could be many different reasons it could be that the you know the company that we partner with to bring you know to bring a program in may really want us to take that subsidiary public or it, it may be that um you know that the the management team of, of that of that you know that subsidiary is is really motivated and we, we think it's kind of going to be long-term best for the overall enterprise to, to to do that um so there could still very well be reasons uh where where we'll do that but it's going to be very kind of you know situational specific so my other niche finance question is more along the lines of, do you think that this business model would be more difficult to replicate now in 2023, going on 2024, um, because of a sort of high interest rate environment? And when Royvan started, I'm not sure if you used you know debt instruments to raise early capital, but if you went to venture capital now and you said, well, you know, I want to raise money to find the diamond in the rough from a, a pipeline of big pharma. Um, without uh, you know a really good idea of how you're going to take that to commercial, this is what Royvent does very well at scale. But um, do you think it would be more difficult now to start this type of company if you had to raise that money on the back of debt, and then the returns would be less uh, if you do eventually get that drug approved and commercialized? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think on the on the debt point, I mean, and on the interest rate environment point. Um, so look, so we we have, uh, I, I think, as many biotech companies do, um, we have had a, a relatively allergic reaction to 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 um, to raising debt, and so we have not done that. Um, you know, done that sort of you know from inception at at, at the relevant level. We've um, we've just avoided it, right? We want to you know retain the the sort of the upside and the skew and um and the flexibility and i think kind of having a very simple capital structure has uh has served us very well in that regard um look i i do think that um what i outlined here was i you know was a big idea right it was a big idea to sort of do this at scale in parallel and i think that um you know, by, I've been I've been doing this uh, a pretty long time, and there've been obviously bear markets in biotech and and bull markets in biotech, and obviously we're in a middle of a relatively brutal uh, bear market in biotech, and so I do think that it would be harder, certainly, to um, you know to 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 raise sort of the, the the scale of capital to really sort of fully leverage this, and I think you know most most funds and 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 sort of the ability to kind of like again raise capital at scale to do something like this um is probably harder than it was when we were getting raven off the ground but it's not impossible and and i do think that um you know these things have cycles and they will likely change and i'm sure that at some at some point you know uh, it'll be more favorable to do something like that I do think, though, that like what and you alluded to it that you know speaking as as uh um, you know, 
you know, for Royvend, I do think that what we have, what we've been able to do, it's not just sort of raise the capital, um, but it's actually been to show the track record of success, right? So, you know, we talked about the model and sort of how we use these vet teams and so forth. And I think, you know, at the time that we were sort of really starting out, it was a concept and it was a little bit of a unconventional concept, not in the sort of hub and spoke model, but even in the track record of bring something in, right? I think, I think, um, you know, people who had, you know, been in industry, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to, to hear sort of a view of like, look, companies that have done this, that don't have, um, you know, don't have the history with that molecule or haven't been doing R&D in that area, just simply, you know, those tend not to work out. Um, and I think part of what uh, we have uh, both proven to ourselves and to others is that actually we can sort of take, you know, take a baton that's already, you know, been in, in flight and really, you know, go from whether it's from preclinical to clinical or, or right into phase three, sort of the full, full spectrum, we're able to actually execute things to a high de degree of success. And I do think that that um, is, is something that certainly, um, you know, all potential, you know, all potential uh, partners have noticed, whether that's big pharma companies or, you know, academic researchers or regional players, we've done, you know, deals with, with every, every type of uh, counterparty at this point. But that sort of, you know, trust that we will execute things to a high standard, I think is super important. And I do think that that is uh, something that differentiates us from, I think, most other, you know, most other, uh, you know, companies that, that might be getting off the ground now or, or approaches or funds or things. I think people can talk about access to capital, but that is, I think, as you noted, like that is just one ingredient here. And I think ultimately you need, you need capital you need talent and you need promising medicines. And I think we've been able to deliver uh, on that so far. And, and you know, I, think, I think we're just getting started. Yeah, certainly talking about delivery of, of good clinical success. So you have uh, one approved drug from Dermavant. Um, right. And uh, the recent announcement of the acquisition of Televant by Roche, this Asset has a really interesting lifetime because last year, I believe, you acquired that asset from Pfizer and you ran a clinical trial and it showed um, that this drug was uh, efficacious and, and safe. Uh, and, and it led to this year that asset being acquired by Roche. Can you tell us about the lifetime of this asset? And um, it, it targets TL1A. Can you tell us more about the target and um, specifically what this drug is doing and what indications it, it could be used to treat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so uh, this was a, this was a, um, a program, obviously, that, that Pfizer had, had discovered and developed. They ran a, a phase two study that was, that was um, you know, was promising and then, uh, and then ran a phase two B study that, you know, we took over, um, you know, took over, uh, when sort of part of that study was was sort of uh, read out, that was sort of the first induction data that would that we reported out in, in January, and then the sort of the, the maintenance phase or the chronic phase of that study we reported out over the summer. Um, you know, I think a lot uh, a lot has sort of has changed uh, over the past year in ways that you know uh, we we didn't we we 
we were hopeful, but we certainly didn't know. And, and I think Pfizer didn't know and the field didn't know how those things would kind of all develop at once. And, um, and that I think has, has sort of culminated obviously in a lot of strategic interest uh, across, not just for our program, but for, for other programs in the space. And so, you know, since we announced the partnership with Pfizer, you know, we, we, we got sort of the final results of that induction data that looked really, really promising, I think, in, in a number of different fronts. Um, uh, another company that uh, that was developing a, a, a drug going after the same mechanism, Prometheus, reported their data. So then there was sort of corroboration across two different programs that this is like, you know, the data that we're seeing is actually quite exciting. Um, uh, then, then Prometheus actually was bought by by Merck, um, and uh, and then you know we reported our chronic data, um, and then Sanofi did a partnership with Teva on their TL1A. Those are really the, the three clinical stage programs. And then and then and then actually just this morning we announced that we closed on the on the deal with with Roche. Um, so a lot kind of uh, I think this was sort of remarkable for the sort of the the velocity of sort of those new uh, those new findings including I think really our chronic phase data, which really showed both the sort of biomarker approach, which has been something that the, the field has been hungry for for a long time, as well as I, I think the, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the fact that the data seemed to be getting better over time. And that was just simply unknowable, um, you know, unknowable a year ago. Really, really super interesting and, and amazing that it all came together in about a year. Um, so, we see the headline number, uh, $7.1 billion, something in, along those lines. How does that deal break down and what responsibilities, if any, does Royvent retain? And is there you know, ongoing clinical development that Royvent's taking on or is it all under the umbrella of Roche? Yeah, it's it's um it's at this point going to be so so the it's largely under the umbrella of Roche. Uh, basically, Roche kind of steps into our shoes. Roche now has rights in the U.S. and Japan, and and will be developing it globally. Pfizer actually retains rights in, um, in in basically the rest of the world, so not U.S. and Japan. Um, but Pfizer is not sort of you know going to be putting more money into. To development or to the extent that they do a further collaboration with Roche that's you know independent of our involvement entirely um, you know we're focused on obviously you know making sure that that uh, we're doing everything that we can to help uh, with that transition and getting you know the phase three program up and running and really kind of planning for big success so we're there to be you know be helpful and 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 um, you know and 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 help Roche in any way we can, but but ultimately this is now uh, this is now uh, as of this morning Roche's program. That's um that that's great and a, a really incredible success and congratulations to you and your team. The the field in which Televan operated this um you know inflammatory and immunology uh, field is really burgeoning, and you have another subsidiary Immunovant that is working. Um, in the area of autoimmune disease, can you can you give us a sense for what you're excited about in this I and I space, and what Royvan's future is in this space, and and how are you trying to uh, be a leader in this in this field? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I can talk a little bit about Aminovan. It's it's a a pretty different uh, approach as as people may 
may know, uh, totally different uh, biology at play. Uh, so this is an FCRN. There are two different two different programs at Immunovant that are both uh, CRN antibodies. So they basically prevent, uh, they bind to the FCRN uh, receptor and as a result, basically prevent the binding of IgG to the FCRN receptor. Um, sort of physiologically what happens uh, or biologically what happens uh, normally is that FCRN receptor then um, kind of in essence protects the IgG from, from degradation. Um, and, and so what happens when you give the antibody is in essence, you're sort of removing the drain, uh, sort of the, you know, the, whatever the, the plunger from the, or the, uh, you know, the cover from the drain and you end up with a, a depletion of IgG. Um, and so that's, that's um, obviously particularly relevant for diseases where pathogenic IgG is sort of the, the main cause of disease. Or potentially, there's sort of another prong, which I think is being interrogated both by Immunovent as well as other uh, other companies in that space. Um, diseases for which it's like uh, the you know the IgG is not directly pathogenic, but it's sort of part of this kind of immune complex driven diseases. Um, and so the sort of extensibility across many different indications, uh, I think, is still being uh, being explored. And I think it's you know again one of these. Uh, drugs uniquely mechanistically that can kind of touch a lot of different uh, different indications and, and potentially have an impact on patients in, in quite a range of different uh, therapeutic categories. Um, you know, I think that that we are really always, as I noted before, we're, we're at this point, I think, motivated by patient impact, and we're trying to look for drugs that really can kind of have a transformative impact. And, um, you know, I think that, that uh, while we we still even on the back of kind of the sale of Telavant to uh, to Roche have a sort of a, I'd say a concentration in immunology, uh, we and and that is an area as you noted that where there's a lot of sort of you know pharmaceutical interest there's a lot of just just general uh, interest because you know many many people have uh, some form of autoimmune disease, uh, which is really interesting to us, uh, but we assembled that. Um, not because we set out to be, uh, you know, an immunology company, but because actually the we just kept seeing things in immunology that were uh, attractive, and we did it largely at a time where that was a much less hot area than it, you know, than it now seems to be, uh, and that's kind of I think again, uh, sort of emblematic of our approach and sort of our contrarian kind of nature. Um, so we will continue to look for, for, for great programs in immunology. We obviously have a lot of, you know, internal expertise now in, in, in a range of different programs, even with different VAT teams uh, as well. But I would suspect that um, the, the, next, uh, the next wave of things you'll see from us is, is just as likely, if not more likely, to be in, in other areas where, again, there's, there's maybe less, less uh, sort of... Uh, interest and focus from some of the big pharma companies, uh, but we still think um, there are, you know, valuable and promising medicines that that, that could be developed and, and commercialized. The, the business model really allows you to stay ahead of the curve. Um, and I think that's clear based on um, what you've told us today. I noticed that another one of your um, Vant companies, Pryovant, has a TIC2 inhibitor. That That's another really popular target in the autoimmune space. Can you tell us more about that? Is there any, um, you know, sort of IND enabling study on the horizon? And yeah, absolutely. I guess, can you give us an idea of why you were interested in that, that target? In yeah. Particular? Yeah. Uh, well, so this is actually a, a case of 
really, I think, um, you know, uh, just a lot of things that, that we sort of touched on, uh, you know, in this conversation, um, really kind of uh, manifesting here. So it's a, it's a Breposit nib is, is the program that we're talking about. It's uh, actually a dual TIC2 and JAK1 inhibitor. And as you know, so TIC, uh, as you noted, TIC2 is like a kind of a hot target these days. The, the sort of the things that have been um, you guard, guard a lot of attention and, and interest have been sort of pure TIC2 inhibitors. Um, this is not that. This is actually a dual inhibitor. Um, and the thing that was interesting to us is uh, this is a program that was developed by, by Pfizer. And, and Pfizer had been, you know, Pfizer is actually, you know, uh, probably unquestionably the, you know, the global leader uh, in sort of Jack biology. Um, they were the, the, you know, the company with that first sort of developed cell jams, and they have sort of an entire portfolio of Jack inhibitors. And as you may know, TIC2 is sort of the, it's got a different name, but it's actually part of the Jack, uh, Jack family and all of these uh, signal via these, you know, sort of pairwise, uh, pairwise dimerization. Um, and so we had this kind of unique molecule where rather than go after indications that we thought that look, Jack ones had already kind of, you know, were already being prosecuted in because there are like some really good Jack one inhibitors out there, uh, or things where tick two is already being prosecuted in that, you know, you only need tick two. Well, there's, there's ones out there. So could we, we were kind of inheriting this program in, in partnership with Pfizer that, um, you know, was sort of going after a, a set of, I would say, broader market indications that were, you know, that were sort of competitively intense, either either with like competition from from Jack, Jack inhibitors or competition from TIC2 inhibitors. And so we thought like, rather than, than do that, where, again, we have, we looked at the sort of the, as I call it, the bones of the program, this is a, this is a highly, highly efficacious drug rather than go after the same indications that, you know, many other companies were going and feeling like, look, we're going after, or we're sort of getting into a, you know, a, you know, commercialization battle with, you know, with the biggest uh, global pharmaceutical companies in the world. What, what could we do that really kind of leaned on that unique biology of hitting both TIC2 and JAK1? Like, were there actually a unique indication set that we could go after that might be, uh, that that had you know great unmet need that might be competitively less crowded and where we could be you know both first in class and and, and best in class and in a certain sense only in class and so so we sort of went through an exhaustive pro process internally to really kind of try to figure out yeah could we do something creative and different than what had been done uh, with these sort of you know single single inhibitor programs and and we we ended up actually with we we see that there's sort of a clustering of what I call specialty rheumatology indications, where there's, I think, good evidence to suggest that, in essence, we get benefit from both inhibition of TIC2 and inhibition of JAK1. And, and we know that the sort of the relevant cytokines are, um, you know, sort of at play here. And, and so there's sort of a lot of indirect proof, proof by proxy, proof by single inhibitors, proof by you know, some of the, you know, the biologics, the antibodies that go after, you know, will knock down a certain cytokine. Um, and that's kind of the core of the bet. So uh, we, we're actually, we're, we're way beyond actually IND enabling work. We're actually in phase three right now in um, the lead indication, which is dermatomyositis. 
uh, we're in phase two and another uh, specialty rheumatology indication, non-infectious uveitis. And we think that there's actually going to be a string of other indications we haven't yet talked about that will sort of layer in uh, beyond that. So we're really excited. I think, like I said, it, it's sort of a, a great example of, you know, you got to you got to have the sort of the bones of the drug have to be good, but then sort of the you know creativity around indication selection and development strategy and you know, in a certain sense, also, you know, risk appetite, we're going, we felt like we had enough data to go straight into phase three uh, in dermatomyositis, a different approach might have been, let's, you know, first do a, a, a phase two, you know, really kind of see where we have and then go to phase three, but we wanted to really kind of, um, you know, get to market as quickly as possible. We thought that the, you know, the, we had enough evidence to 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 feel confident that it would work and so so that's what we decided to do even though it's you know somewhat yeah. somewhat unconventional yeah but it's really interesting hearing you talk about the matching of unmet need with this differentiated asset um to really sort of carve your own path rather than just going off of what's conventional so i think that came across very clearly i i want to end by kind of testing the limits of this business model. I, I have sort of two areas that I'm hoping you could discuss. Um, the first of which is, uh, you know, Royvent's interest in cell and gene therapy and kind of the field of large biologics. You've worked in both biologics and small molecules, um, but do you think that this business model holds up in, you know, say cell therapy, gene therapy, and is, is that something you're interested in? Um, and the second point is, related, but platform technologies. And these are yeah. very common now in um, biotech companies that are being formed. Um, do you think that you could bring in or have you already brought in a platform that you've able, been able to successfully apply this business model to? Yeah, uh, a few different questions there. So let me uh, let me make sure I, I remind me if I, I miss uh, any of that. So yes, we so look. I, I you know I started out by telling you that we're kind of modality agnostic and stage agnostic. I think um, so. We have we have definitely had um, you know sort of cell or tissue based therapies in our past. In fact, actually, we have an approved uh, uh, approved medicine that is now at a, at a company because we we ended up um, partnering or selling our, our rights to it uh, a few years ago to Sumitomo Pharma. Uh, that is sort of a you know a, a tissue-based sort of regenerative medicine therapy. Uh, so that's you know one one extreme. We've had gene therapies and and, and things like that in the past as well, uh, and we will continue to kind of. So we we do actually have uh, at this point a fair amount of sort of expertise and and learned experience you know from from looking at things like that. I will say that that one of the things that we learned is. Um, in a certain sense, look, this is a this is a you know complicated uh, complicated business that we're in with you know very long lead times. It's very expensive, and I, I do think that you know um, certainly being able to sort of have clarity on how much you know how much it will cost to to sort of run the next study or to manufacture the therapy and things like that. Um, has sort of tended to pull us back typically into into sort of more either small molecules or you know antibody you know biologic based drugs, uh, just because I think the you know, the industry has a lot more reps collectively in, in sort of knowing knowing what that looks like and and sort of what the specific challenges are as opposed to kind of the you know the springing surprise version of those challenges. Uh, but look, we would we would not be authentic to to ourselves if we 
didn't continue to always kind of look for, you know, look and evaluate things like gene therapies. In fact, we're, you know, we, we continue to do that even, even today. And, and if we, again, we're, we're driven by the specific program and if we find something that we're really interested in, we'll absolutely, we'll absolutely do it. Um, so that was one question. I think you asked a, a question about platform, right? Yeah. The second was about bringing in a, a platform and building a company around that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have done that. Um, we, we've actually done it in a couple of different, uh, different ways. So um, we have done a little bit of work in discovery uh, over the over the past few years um, that was sort of catalyzed by a couple of different views of, you know, whether to call it platform or, or, or not, but, you know, looking at sort of computationally driven drug discovery uh, into both sort of traditional small molecules, as well as, uh, as well as sort of uh, degraders and, and glues as, as sort of a, again, as sort of an emerging uh, emerging biology, emerging sort of therapeutic category. Um, we've done it in the way that that we do it, which is we we set up sort of you know rather than have sort of a sprawling uh, you know discovery apparatus, what we've tried to do is kind of uh, have small teams with sort of defined you know defined bets and goals and 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 sort of fund it that way, and 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 then you know potentially bring in outside capital and so forth. So it's it's a relatively small piece of what we do, but that's a version of, at least on the sort of earlier side of things uh, of what we've done, uh, what we've done before. Um, we've also uh, applied a different kind of uh, business. And again, we do the same thing where we, again, set it up as a business, but a business uh, uh, that is sort of more technology focused to try to you know, achieve uh, or help us with the kinds of problems that we, that we sort of find ourselves or, or challenges that we found ourselves just in, in our own sort of mainline drug development and commercialization. And so we we set up a, you know, a number of different companies, you know, typically relatively small in, in scope and size to sort of help with, you know, technology that could be applied to accelerate development and commercialization in, in unique ways. And, um, you know, Sometimes we're a client, sometimes it's more to try to see if we can kind of get that sort of product market fit validation and, you know, and, and, and sort of learn uh, that way. And so we have a number of ongoing efforts that's at a it's sort of a, a, a different part of our business that we call internally here Worthen Health. Um, but, but all of that is related to sort of the, the, the sort of the, the long-term vision of getting drugs developed and, and commercialized efficiently. Yeah. Well, it's an excellent mission, and I think your continued success will help you keep bringing those successes to the uh, to the forefront. Get new medicines to people. That's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mayuk. I, I think for our listeners, this should really be a case study on um, you know new and innovative uh, drug development models. And I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with us. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcasts on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli. Thank you for listening.